Many years ago, when we first began observing the Days of Unleavened Bread up at Big Sandy, the old Redwood Tabernacle was open on both sides, and a group of a few hundred people came there from all over the country, even from as far away as Oregon and California. And the people around Gilmer, Gladewater, Pritchett, Longview, Tyler, were going around saying, the Days of Unleavened what? Well, ahead of time, some of the people who had to do with that festival, including Mrs. Roy Hammer, who had to do with calling around and getting lodging for a lot of people from out of state, all over the town of Gladewater. We used to write in our letters it was nine miles the other side of Gladewater instead of two miles this side of Big Sandy. We didn't mention Big Sandy for the first several years because we thought it was too small. And she went around to some of the restaurants and told them about the peculiar dietary habits of these few hundred people who were coming in there and explained to them, as people would when they went in, they said, oh, no, we don't want any bread this morning, or no, we don't want any hotcakes, and they would request rye crisp. Well, in the following year, that following fall, after the restaurants all got the word and they were all talking about it, probably a lot of them Baptists and Methodists and so on, it was coming time for the Feast of Tabernacles. And Mrs. Hammer let them all know that here come these church people again. And all those restaurants went out and laid in a tremendous stock of rye crisp. Now, I used to be interviewed by the media when I would come over there. I say the media with tongue-in-cheek. I think it was a big sandy newspaper cranked out by one gentleman. And they used to call it in their newspaper the Feast of the Tabernacle because they were told that building was a tabernacle and we were having a feast in there. You know, you old hands here that have been doing this for 30 years and more take a lot of things for granted. We know that this is the days of unleavened bread, but when I'm watching my television set the last few days, what am I seeing? Kids running around picking up eggs out of lawns, and it just so happens that we're not even a week off this time. We're right here at Ishtar weekend, and of course, Sunday morning before daylight, people will be getting up and heading to the nearest mountain, the outdoor pavilion, or the Rose Bowl or wherever, to have an Easter sunrise service. Why do we observe the Days of Unleavened Bread? What's it all about? Why do we do it? If you'll turn to Exodus, the 12th chapter, you will see that in the very beginning at the Exodus, when God brought Israel out of Egypt, he told them not only about the Passover, but also the Days of Unleavened Bread. He told them that they should eat the Lord's Passover with their loins girded, I'll read up to that beginning in chapter 12. He mentioned in the third verse that they were to take a lamb for an house. The lamb was to be without blemish. It was to be kept until the 14th day at even, and other scriptures in the Bible say at even, comma, meaning the going down of the sun. The Bible itself says that. But yet, the word or the expression between the two evenings can mean, according to only a small handful of scholars, after sunset and before full dark. But that is not the way it reads in the other companion scriptures in the Bible, nor is it the way Dr. Bullinger and many other people say it ought to read. The expression evening means leveling, actually. And evening can be any time from noon to sunset, and is spoken of as evening, the evening sacrifice, which always occurred at 3 p.m. We, in our language, will say afternoon at 3 o'clock. We don't start saying evening till 5, 5.30, or 6. But the Bible speaks of the word evening, meaning any time, really, afternoon, even at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Notice what they did, and let's think about it in retrospect of the error that was taught in the church, the parent church, 
for many, many decades by a simple oversight of the time of the exodus and the spoiling of the Egyptians. Now, this is aside from what I really want to talk to you about, but since we're here, let's go through it quickly. They shall take of the blood and strike it on the two side posts, verse 7, and the upper door of the houses wherein they shall eat it. They shall eat the flesh in that night, and they were to slay the lamb not after the 13th as the sun went down on the beginning of the 14th, a big error that was made because it was not understood that Jesus had actually instituted the symbols of his broken body and shed blood about 17 to 24 hours before the traditional Passover of the Jews. It makes no sense at all to write a booklet, Has Time Been Lost?, and to point to the fact that the oracles were given to the Jews, and point to the fact that the Jewish race never lost track of the Sabbath, and then try to say they lost track of the date on which the Passover was to be observed. They did no such thing. Notice what happened that night. You shall eat the flesh in that night, roast with fire and unleavened bread, and with bitter herbs shall they eat it. It was not to be eaten raw or boiled, sodden with water, but roast the head with the legs and all the pertinence thereof. And you shall let nothing of it remain until the morning, and that which remains until the morning you shall burn with fire. And this is the way you are supposed to eat it. With your loins girded, they wore loose garments, big leathern belts that had pockets in them. They took those garments, gathered them up, tucked them into these big, thick leather belts so that a man's legs were free from just above the knee and he could run. Otherwise, he'd trip all over himself wearing the Arab-type garments that you see in the Middle East even to this day. And your shoes on your feet, sandals, shoes, whatever, made of animal skins. And your staff in your hand, a walking stick for the elderly or anyone who might use one. And maybe a shepherd's crook or a stick that they would use to guide their cattle, camels, sheep, goats, whatever. And you shall eat it in haste. Now that is really a hasty meal. That's kind of the, the original quick food, isn't it? The Passover was quick food. Eaten in haste, shoes on your feet, loins girded, staff in your hand, ready to go somewhere. It is the Eternal's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt this night, and will smite all the firstborn of the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and so on. And the blood will be a token, and I will pass over you when I see the blood, and the plague shall not be upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of Egypt. Many people... I got one letter recently from a, man, from a man who was arguing the only place where you read the word Passover in the Bible always means the passing of the death angel. It means no such thing. You can read throughout the book of Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Numbers. You can read throughout even on into Chronicles, First and Second Chronicles of the days of Josiah. Uh, you can read some of the Psalms and others where they killed the Passover. What did they kill? The death angel? They killed the Passover. On one occasion it said, killed their Passovers, plural, more than one lamb. And on the occasion where they celebrated the Passover by killing the Passover a month late and then had two Passovers and two days of unleavened bread, I received sometimes amateur theologians giving me letters and documents and articles telling us that we're all wrong in the way we're doing it. We're supposed to be doing it on Simon the 6th or some other time than we have been doing it traditionally in God's church. This day shall be unto you for a memorial. What day? The day the death angel passed over, the day they ate the meal. Now, is this what they did? Did all of this we read, loins girded, shoes on their feet, staff in their hand, the bread of haste, ate it in trepidation, ate quick food, and then burnt all of the leftovers, took their shoes off, put the staff back in the corner, 
ungirded their loins, took off their belt, took off their garments, crawled into bed with their wife, looked fearfully out, listening to the moaning and weeping of the Egyptians, waited for the death angel to pass over, and finally, after a nervous night, went to sleep, right? Went to sleep. Got up the next morning, ate breakfast, right? Got rest again, right? Well, why did the church believe that for decades? I don't know. But they did, because the idea was they had to use all the next day to go out and spoil the Egyptians. But if you just read the third chapter and read where Moses had said earlier, you shall now go out and spoil the Egyptians, there was no 24-hour delay. They went out in the wee hours of that same night. Once the death angel had passed and Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron, then the proscription against sticking your nose outside the blood on the doors and the lintels and so on was over. The death angel was gone, and the Bible says you cannot misunderstand this if you simply read the 12th chapter of the book of Exodus and believe it. Just read it the way it is and believe it, and there's no problem, is there? It happened on that night, which was the 15th. They killed it on the 14th. They ate it on the 15th. The Exodus was on the 15th, and this is the 15th of the month of Abib, now, last night we did something which is sort of a carryover from a really largely nonsensical church tradition that began way back many, many decades ago when my father used to stand in the pulpit up in Big Sandy and talk about a night to be much remembered. Actually, the Greek, the Hebrew word rather can be a night of watching. The expression night to be much remembered is merely an old King James error. And because the church, many, many years ago, used to sit down to a big meal until it got so unwieldy, it was just awkward. We'd have meant thousands of people sitting down, I remember so very well, kind of got to like the rubber chicken circuit. You're sitting there for an hour or two, and the women are just running back and forth in the kitchen and putting plates down. They've got, you know, chicken or whatever. And, uh, you know, the wine is even collecting lint and dust. It's been sitting there in a glass so long. And finally, and I think the Vances and a lot of other people remember those days, we, hundreds and hundreds of us would be seated in the big tabernacle building, and my dad would get up for about 20 minutes and read some of the scriptures that we had read in responsive readings last night, and then everybody would eat all at the same time. Well, as my booklet explains, and as all the Gentiles understand, that won't be done, of course, in the Philippines. It won't be done in Jamaica. Why should it? Because they are not Israelites, and there is no reason for them to teach their children about something which was eclipsed and which utterly faded into obscurity and which has been past dead history from the time of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Because Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. And I do want to caution the church, and I'll just say it in rather, un, you know, unequivocal terms. Don't let me find anybody sacrificing lambs or decorating a so-called night to be much remembered with little lambs at the door or going too far, thinking you've got to eat roast lamb and all of this, because we're, if you're going to do that, you may as well go back and forget Jesus Christ's sacrifice and go to an Old Testament Passover. Now, think about it and have a little sympathy from my point of view. I'm the guy the media comes looking for, right? They don't come looking for you other people. They come looking for me. What do you think is one of the biggest albatrosses around our neck from the standpoint of explaining what we do, what we believe, what we practice to the world. Weekly Sabbath, Days of Unleavened Bread, all the annual holy days, right? What is the biggest kind of a constant charge they lay at our door, almost like an epithet, and that is that we are 
Jewish. I got a violent letter just the other day I had to write a big long response to. You are a bogus church. You're mixing Jewish with Christian religion. You look like a bunch of Jews. I have to fight that all the time. I have to write letters. I have to talk to, you know, talk show hosts and people out in the world, Baptists and Methodists, about why we're not a bunch of Jews. So why should I add another occasion and build up another big roadblock and then try to explain it away? So I'll just say that in passing, but it is something that is optional and something that people can do if they wish, but I would exercise a good deal of caution. Verse 14, chapter 12, This day shall be unto you for a memorial, and you shall keep it a feast to the eternal throughout your generations. You shall keep it a feast by an ordinance forever. Now, there's nothing that is difficult to understand about this next verse. Seven days shall you eat unleavened bread. I've talked to people recently when I've been out on a personal appearance or here. I think one couple told me right here in Tyler where a minister of the parent church told them, no, you don't have to do any such a thing, but sort of explained it, that if you like bread and if you want a piece of bread with your meal, you don't need to eat bread, but if you're a bread eater, you know, when you get around eating bread, then the kind of bread you eat ought to be unleavened. But that isn't what it says, is it? Doesn't it say, seven days shall you eat unleavened bread? And it doesn't just say it once. It says it over and over again in the Bible. Now, what's difficult about that? One little piece of hardtack or rye crisp never hurt anybody. If all you do it to be obedient to God is to do it in symbolism. He went on that from the first day... You're to put leaven out of your houses. For whosoever eats leavened bread from the first day until the seventh day, that soul shall be cut off from Israel. And in the first day there shall be an holy convocation, and in the seventh day an holy convocation. Notice verse 17, 18, and 19. You shall observe the feast of unleavened bread, for in this selfsame day have I brought your armies out of the land of Egypt. Any question about which day they went out? On the 15th. But, of course, the church believed for many, many days that they went out apparently the following day, and they had the chronology all mixed up. For in this selfsame day have I brought your armies out of the land of Egypt, therefore shall you observe this day in your generations by an ordinance forever. In the first month, on the fourteenth day of the month, at even you shall eat unleavened bread, until the one and twentieth day of the month at even. Draw you a chart and count the days. You've got eight days. You're to eat it on the fourteenth. They killed it, but if you look at it very clearly, that it was the 14th that the going down of the sun and the meal was not eaten until the 15th, you've only got seven days. There are not eight days of unleavened bread. Seven days shall you eat unleavened bread. Now, because Jesus Christ, and he was authorized, no matter the letter I got saying Christ was not authorized, I absolutely reject that argument. Whoever wrote it, wrong. They're going to be wrong next time they say it. They were wrong the last time they said it. And they'll be wrong every time they say it from now on. Christ was authorized to change the symbols from roast lamb to bread and wine. And he did so approximately 17 to 24 hours earlier, and they had to haste to get his body in the grave. If you read the, the Gospel of John, the non-synoptic Gospel of John, and read the others as well, because that was preparation day for an high day Sabbath, which was this day, the 15th of Abib, the first day of unleavened bread. Now let's get to the question as to why. Why do we do it? Why do we eat unleavened bread? 
I won't read Leviticus 23, 5-7, which is largely a rep repetition of what we just read, but let's go to 1 Corinthians 5, where we find the Apostle Paul teaching a group of Greeks, Gentiles, now you could say Filipinos, Jamaicans, Africans, you could talk about any color, any race, but you're not dealing with white or Caucasian or Semitic Israelites, you're dealing with Gentiles. There are all kinds of problems in this church. Drunkenness at the Passover. Fornication, in this case, apparently incest. Notice in the fourth chapter, reading up to it, a little bit of rain on the roof, I hear. He said, He had sent Timotheus, verse 17, my beloved son and faithful in the Lord, chapter 4, verse 17, who shall bring you into remembrance of my ways, which be in Christ, as I teach everywhere in every church. Now some are puffed up as though I would not come to you, swelled up or puffed up. He begins introducing that thought of vanity before the statement about the days of unleavened bread. But I will come to you shortly, if the Lord will, and will know not the speech of them which are puffed up, but the power. What is this puffing up? Well, it's swollen up with importance. It is swollen up with vanity with ego, with a complete false sense of their own spiritual importance and their own status. But the kingdom of God is not in word, but in power. What will you? Shall I come unto you with a rod, or in love, and in the spirit of meekness? It is reported commonly, they didn't care, this was just common gossip, that there is fornication among you, and such fornication as is not so much as named among the Gentiles that one should have his own father's wife. Was it his mother? I don't know. It was certainly a stepmother, and because some people couldn't deal with that, and they couldn't handle it from the standpoint of thinking it might be actually his own mother, uh, most of the commentaries opine that perhaps a man was a widower who had married again, and this man was committing adultery with his stepmother. And you are puffed up. What a contrast and have not rather mourned that he that has done this deed might be taken away from among you. For verily, as absent in body, but present in spirit, have I judged already, as though I were present, concerning him that has done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together, and with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, a terrible sentence now, to deliver such an one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, disease, mental disease, whatever might happen, that the Spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your glorying is not good. Know you not that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Now, this is New Testament. This is the New Testament Bible. This is the Baptist Bible. This is Methodist Bible, Church of Christ, First Christian Church, Scientist. It's New Testament, isn't it? How many times, if you were a Sunday keeper for much of your adult life, and you went to a Sunday service, did you hear a Sunday preacher wade through this passage and deal with why Paul was teaching something about these days of unleavened bread to a Gentile church when everybody used to call it Jewish? I don't think you ever did. They ignore it. They don't touch upon it. They just don't preach it because they're afraid of it. They don't know how to explain it. Your glorying is not good. Don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? And, of course, housewives know that. If you want to prove it, you can get one of these fly-proof little 
uh, boxes with wire mesh and put it outside your window and take some plain dough and put it out there. Don't do it during the days of unleavened bread. Just leave it overnight. Leave it sit a couple of days to get sort of sour. And if you look it up in the World Book Encyclopedia, look up the word leaven. It has to do with something that rises, and it has to do with the fact that sodium is one of the elements. About 2.6% of the entire crust of the earth is made up of sodium. The last time I looked, I think that's accurate. And you look at bicarbonate of sodium, and you look at all the various things. Of course, uh, one uh, concoction of two deadly poisons put together makes common table salt. But you look at the elements of sodium and the way they work in leavening, and also you look at little yeast spores that are actually not animals but little plants that bud and that reproduce, and what happens when yeast will fall on a piece of dough and then will actually cause these... Uh, little bubbles to form in bread or cookies or what have you and make them light and fluffy and much more palatable. And because leavening swells up or puffs up or makes airy or light, God chose it in this instance as a type of sin, as a type of vanity. Did you know that leaven is also used as a type of God's Spirit? Do you know that in the 13th chapter of Matthew, Jesus uses leaven? Leaven is not evil. God created it. Sodium is not evil. God created it. Yeast spores that are sitting on your nose right now are not evil. God created them. And they have a place in our ecosphere. So God uses leaven, both as a type of sin on the one hand, and because it is insidious and will slowly, by the budding of the yeast spores, permeate an entire lump of dough, he uses it, analogous to God's kingdom. Now he says, your glorying is not good. Don't you know a little leaven leavens a whole lump? My father used to say one rotten apple spoils a whole box. And we know that. If you find a rotten apple in a box, get it out. Maybe the one's right next to it, and you will save it. If you find mold on a piece of bread, get it out. Make it airtight. Maybe you can save the loaf long enough to eat it. Not now, but after the days of unleavened bread. Purge out, therefore, the old leaven, that you may be a new lump. So what was their spiritual condition? Before we read on. Purge out the old leaven. They were what? Puffed up. They had leaven, a type of sin, vanity, common gossip, all kinds of horrible things going on. What was the condition spiritually of the Corinthian church? Leavened. Read his next statement. Even as you are unleavened. Well, now, why don't they preach that? Is that not the most obvious implication that they were there observing the days of unleavened bread physically, but spiritually, morally, the church was leavened. It was leavened spiritually, but it was unleavened physically. Isn't that clear to everybody? He's saying, purge out the old leaven even as you are unleavened. So he's saying, really, purge out the spiritual leavening as you are physically unleavened. And you cleaned out your kitchens of all the leavening agents. That is as plain as the nose on anyone's face. And the churches of this world reject it and have nothing to do with it. For even, and never forget this scripture, Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Christ is my Passover. He is your Passover. We don't celebrate a Passover. If we want to celebrate as a matter of church tradition, worldwide church, and before that, radio church tradition, a so-called night to be much remembered, which is, in effect, something that faded into obscurity and has passed into ancient history and is not efficacious for the forgiveness of our sins, has nothing to do anymore with the plan of salvation, something that eventually is going to be eclipsed in history. Remember that scripture? 
about the drying up of the tongue of the Egyptian sea and an exodus so great after the second coming of Jesus Christ as he gathers the Israelites out of all of Europe and Egypt that he says there will be an exodus so great that it will obliterate from all history the former exodus and it will never be called to mind. So you can even prove from that standpoint that on into the millennium the old exodus of Exodus the 12th chapter will not even be talked about anymore because there will be a brand new one that will occur at the end of World War III and the beginning of God's kingdom that will eclipse even that. So I wish to be as accurate as I can with God's word. Therefore, he says to these Gentiles, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Paul, preaching to the Gentiles, they ought to observe the days of unleavened bread. Now, don't do this because I don't want you to get in trouble. But if you want to really get into a fight, go to a Church of Christ minister, open your Bible to 1 Corinthians 5, and ask him, would you please explain that to me? Now, you won't get in a fight if you keep your mouth shut and don't say anything. And hand him your hanky, because he is going to sweat a little. And then he will try to explain that, but he really won't be able, because he won't know what in the world to say. No, they do not teach that. In the 16th chapter of the book of Matthew, Verse 6, let's turn to that. Matthew 16 and verse 6. Jesus told the disciples, Take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of the Sadducees. I got another document not long ago from a gentleman who was arguing the Simon 6 doctrine and that we're supposed to be wrong on the Passover. And one of his uh, very important points was, he said, They told, Jesus told the Jews, they, meaning the Pharisees, sit in Moses' seat, so whatever they bid you to do. And he said at least twice, Jesus never took issue with the doctrines of the Pharisees. Wrong. Remember that country western song? The guy's singing along, he said, wrong. I don't, I don't know what the words are. Wrong. Jesus said, take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of the Sadducees, and a reason it's because we've taken no bread. Well, he cited the fact of the five and the four thousand, and that they shouldn't think that, because if bread needed to be present, Christ simply could have produced it. How is it, verse 11, that you do not understand that I spake it not to you concerning bread, that you should beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees? They understood then that he bade them not beware of the leaven of bread, but of the doctrine of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, both. He did not give his stamp of approval right across the board to either one of those Jewish sects. He merely implied in his statement concerning they sat in Moses' seat, that when they were faithful to Moses and when they were faithful to the law, we're not talking here about the Mishnah, we're not talking about the Talmud, we're talking about the Torah. And when they sat in Moses' seat and were faithful to Moses, sure, do what they tell you. But don't do according to their works, because they do not. Now, a little later on, if you will turn to Matthew 23, I want to show you what Jesus said, and we've read this many times, about those Pharisees. This is quite an example. Then spake Jesus to the multitude, and this is where you find that scripture that some people use in their arguments to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. All therefore whatsoever they bid you observe, and observe and do, but do not after their works, for they say, and they do not. 
For they bind heavy burdens, and what were those burdens but a combination of the Talmud and their other traditions, and what Christ continually said were the traditions of men. Why did they do that? They bind heavy burdens and grievous to be borne, to be carried, and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. Example. I sat in a boardroom, present were some of the leading ministers of the parent church. I have been urging for years the ministry should not have the first four rows or the first twenty rows. They should not have four gold stickers on their bumpers. They should not be subsidized and have a great big fat check out of third or second tithe in their mailbox so that they go to the Feast of Tabernacles on church expense. Anybody disagree with that? Well, the entire ministry of the parent church disagreed with it. And one man, one of the leaders, one of the really big top ministers, one who became the head of CAD on one occasion, piped up and said, Well, if that were so, I just couldn't afford to go to the feast. Poppycock! We've got little ladies that are destitute who scrimp and save and put dimes and nickels in coffee cans, and other people who give them transportation, people who come and don't think they can stay the whole time, and don't have any money at all, and they come to the feast. And those same ministers would preach, you know, out of the pulpit time and again, you come to the feast, no matter what, you know, save money, come there somehow. But boy, I mean, when it came time to lift one of those burdens with their own fingers, they wouldn't do it. Why do people do that? You know, I'm going to opine here. It must be fun to tell other people what to do. Is that, is that some of it? Get over there. Sit down. Shut up. Come here. You know, that, you do that to your dog, but I mean, you shouldn't be doing it to people. But some people just have to do that. They've got to tell other people what to do. And they get all swelled up with vanity and pride. I guess there's a combination of many elements at work here. We'll look at some of them because Jesus Christ is speaking, and he is the one who took them to task. And we're talking now about leaven. We're talking about why we eat what I characterized several years ago as humble pie, flat bread unleavened, unpuffed, unswollen, flat, humble pie. Why do we eat it every day for seven days? And we take it in, and we imbibe it, and we chew it, and we digest it, and it becomes part of our body. Jesus Christ said, I am the bread. I give my life for the world. He that eateth my flesh shall never die. My flesh I give for the sins of the world. He shed his blood and gave his flesh. And he said, take, eat, this is my body. And it was symbolic, but we're to eat of that unleavened bread seven days. Seven, completion, perfection, is the meaning of the number seven in God's plan. And so there is much more to this than what we heard for about 25 years in the parent organization, where the entire emphasis was put upon our own shoulders, and an awful lot of people forgot the element of Christ. I've heard so many dozens of sermons. I've got the notes myself. I've got my own sermon notes where I preach that theme year after year that the days of unleavened bread picture putting sin out of our lives. I cannot put sin out of my life. I can only ask Christ to come in and he can't dwell together with sin. The greater degree to which Christ comes in and dwells inside of me or you, the lesser degree there is room for sin. I can't put the air out of a glass. 
I can't get that air out of there, can I? How am I going to get the air out of the glass? But if I put water in it, living water, liquid, and God uses water as a type of his Holy Spirit, all the air is gone. The emphasis for decades was putting sin out of our lives. I remember the way they pronounce it all, putting sin out of our lives. I remember, I could even tell you who that was. He used to preach that way. Adjust the glasses, do that, blowing hands, you know. Uh, some of you old hands might know who I'm talking about, and I won't belabor that. But we got to put sin out of our lives, brethren. Well, you know, you'd hear that man up there, and he sounded so righteous, and he's flailing away, and by the time you got through being beaten and whipped, you would cringe out of there, barely looking over your shoes and saying, I can never get as good as that guy is. He's right there close to God. He's got it made. He's going into the kingdom of God with banana skins for shoes on a rolling log in the middle of a turgid mill race at 40 miles an hour, slipping and sliding. I mean, it's so easy for him that the rest of us have got one brutal road to hoe. But boy, not that old boy. He's already got it made. And that's the way you used to feel about it when you hear that. And that's what this stuff is about binding grievous burdens to be borne. What is the biggest burden for you to bear? So many pounds that it hurts your back and you can barely stumble out of the car upstairs and into the house with it, or something preying on your mind that you can't get out. I would say the mental burden, the worry, the fear, the apprehension. We get letters, I don't know whether I could say, uh, Charlie and Vance could tell me, I'm, I imagine half of the letters we get are from, like, grandparents and parents, and it isn't that they are sick, it is that they've got grandkids and others on drugs, or somebody in jail, or a husband who is a drunk, or whatever. And the burden they bear is somebody else's burden. It's the agony going on in their mind because of their desire for our prayers on behalf of some other person. When a minister does that, it's hard to understand why. Verse 5, all their works they do to be seen of men. They make broad their phylacteries and enlarge the borders of their garments. Now, you know, if we were in the military, the way we would do that is to have more gold braid. You can look at some of these third world countries like one time the plain truth put a bloody dictator on the cover. I never did understand that and I resented it, but they did it, so I didn't, I wasn't able to say anything about it at the time. Haile Selassie. Probably killed about as many people as anyone. Marcos to the Philippines. Dirty, rotten thief, crook. He and his wife stole billions of money. And who's going to end up with it? The lawyers in Switzerland that are handling his personal account. But anyway, we won't belabor all of that. But you see these people, and they have never even been in the military, but they get themselves a military uniform. And they stand there with more gold than Eisenhower ever wore, and all kinds of braid and a great big chest full of, of, of ribbons. And one of them, I guess, is for the time that he ran over a bull buffalo at a watering hole with a Model T Ford. I don't know what in the world a ribbon is. All full of color, great big rows like, boy, he'd fought in all kinds of, of theaters of war and all kinds of battles charging up San Juan Hill. Never fought in a battle in his life, but he's all decorated. They love the uppermost rooms at feasts. I know a bunch of ministers that still love those uppermost rooms, that love those front rows, that love those special sections, and love four great big gold stickers on their bumpers, and love all four doors open at the same time and four deacons, you know, three to grab the kids and one for the briefcase, another one to help the wife. Just unbelievable. I used to put up with that. Love the uppermost rooms at feasts and the chief seats in the synagogues and greetings in the markets to be called a man teacher, teacher, rabbi, rabbi. 
But be ye not called rabbi, for one is your master, even Christ, and you are all equal. You are all brethren. Call no man your father. Catholics, they've got arguments about that. They don't even sweat. They can handle that real easy. They're saying, well, that's just talking about your physical father, uh, talking about, you know, uh, and then they stutter and stammer a little bit and tell you, to, well, go look it up in the Catholic Encyclopedia. But they have their so-called Holy Father. Neither be ye called Master, for one is your Master, even Christ. But he that is greatest among you shall be your servant. And whosoever shall exalt himself shall be abased, and he that shall humble himself shall be exalted. Now, there's a great deal said about the Pharisees and the Sadducees, but think about it in the contrast between Christ and your average, everyday Joe Pharisee. Who had the greatest reason to be self-important? It said, and we quoted at the Passover service, Jesus, knowing he had come from God, and knowing he was returning to God, laid aside his garments and took a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet, knowing that he had come from God. Jesus didn't guess. He knew. He could see, almost with x-ray vision, a person's thoughts. He could quote back whole sentences to people as they were thinking them and say it to them. Many, many years ago, we went, my wife and I and some others at the college went to an outdoor huge pavilion over somewhere in Burbank, near the movie studios, I've forgotten, or in Hollywood. And I wanted to see it because it was such a big deal and we were taking exception to it and I thought, well, how can I preach against it or talk about it if I don't go see it? Jesus Christ, superstar. I don't know if any of you ever heard any of the music from that particular uh, play or whatever it was called, but one of them was done by a famous lead singer, Gordon McRae. Gordon McRae's daughter, I only saw her on that one occasion, never heard of her since, so I don't know if she went on to have a career at all, but she sang a song that was allegedly Mary Magdalene, and the song is, I Don't Know How to Love Him. How many of you ever heard that? Anybody ever heard that song? Quite a, quite a few of you. It's got a beautiful sentiment, but it makes you think about Jesus Christ of Nazareth, the stories, of course, of the Hollywood movies that are so absolutely off that they are ridiculous, but he was a man. Jesus Christ of Nazareth knew who he was. He was supremely intelligent. He knew the Old Testament by heart. He knew what was in man. He had perception. He certainly was the most important human being to ever walk the earth. He was God in the flesh. If anybody from any aspect, physical health, education, lineage, genealogy, background, what was going on in his mind, but not appearance, right? Not appearance. The Bible said very clearly, when we see him, he has no form nor comeliness that we should desire him, and we know that he was able to escape out of crowds at a moment's notice because he looked like any other average, everyday Jew of that time. But if there was an excuse for someone to be vain and self-important, Jesus had it, more so than anybody in this room or anybody you've ever met. And instead, where do you usually always find vanity? Well, we've dealt with the Pharisees. Let's go to the first chapter of Ecclesiastes for a moment. Here, if you'll turn back, Psalms, Ecclesiastes, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, just before the book of Isaiah. And in the first chapter and the first verse, 
the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, vanity of vanities, saith the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Look up vanity in the dictionary sometime, if you haven't done that in a long time. And of course it says, what well, all of you know and understand the word vanity to mean. That vanity is a feeling of pride, of being better, higher, more educated, more important, better looking, but in some way superior to other people. Uh, I think the French word for eyebrow is seal, is it not? And so we take the English word supercile or supercilious, meaning raised eyebrows. And you look in the third chapter of the book of Isaiah, the daughters of Zion are haughty, for they walk with stretched forth necks. And it talks about their jewelry and their heritage. Now, every conceivable extreme has been already invented by the human family trying to be vain about something. You can be vain about anything. And I've oftentimes seen that the dumber people are, the more vain they can become. And sometimes you just get a little bit upset because I almost always run across at least one or two would-be Elijah's or Jonah's or Messiah's or whatever they are at these personal appearance campaigns, uh, people who have fortresses and castles or who run around in long robes. We have one little sect that comes to one of my meetings, all of them dressed in brown robes. So have any of you ever had any experience or have you seen in the ancient archives or history books or do you see around, even in society today, somebody who decided that it's better to be bald, that that's the way to go, be bald? Shave your head. Well, sure you have. Even basketball players, right? That's sort of in now. Now, what's the opposite extreme? Enough hair to stuff a pillow, right? And you've seen people with hair like that. Looks like they just plugged their thumb into a light socket, straight up, colored orange or whatever, and they got a guitar or whatever, and there they are. Every conceivable extreme from one extreme of baldness to the other extreme of a bushel of hair has been tried by human beings to be vain. Now, you can talk about any expression. There are only so many expressions that you can screw your face up into, and if you want to see a man that's good at it, look at somebody named Tilton or Hilton, or whatever his name is, on television sometime. But don't watch very long. You might get mesmerized and decide it's kind of fun, and you want to do it again. It's kind of entertaining, because he's kind of a comic. But there are all sorts of expressions you can put on your face, and people will do that to be vain. How well I remember how difficult it was for me at about age 14 to start smoking. I'm about 4 foot 11. I'm a skinny little kid and weigh about 125 pounds. I, I, I've got little peach fuzz on my face and a high squeaky little voice. But I'm standing near the corner store by my school in Eugene, Oregon with a cigarette in my mouth looking tough, looking old looking experienced, like I've been around. How did you start smoking if you did? What were your motives? Why did you do it? Well, I did it to look tough. Now, I've got to be honest with you. I joined the Navy. And I joined the Navy for a lot of reasons, one of which was to get out from under a lot of authoritarian uh, authority and so on at home. But as much when I was choosing the service, I could have joined the Army. No way. I hated the Army uniform. I could have joined the Marines, and I thought they looked a little ridiculous, sort of like a bellhop or a doorman. People used to talk about that. But two twins with whom I grew up came through Pasadena, and there they were in those swabby Navy uniforms. And I said, i got to have one of those. And really, it was all vanity. I joined the Navy out of vanity because I wanted to walk around in that uniform. And I would walk like I just got off the ship, you know. 
side to side. Two years I'm on a base. I hadn't been near a ship. I hadn't even seen a ship. I had to go down and, and drive out around, you know, like a tourist. Look, there's a ship. Two years I'm in the Navy before I finally get to go to sea. So finally they sent me to sea on a ship, and then I really did exaggerate that walk. Oh, I'd come back after being at sea, and they'd say, look at that sailor. He's been at sea. He's walking funny. And I, my eye, you know, oh, man, I wanted people looking at me, that uniform. It was all absolute vanity. I remember a man who was bowling. I had to learn this lesson in bowling because one of the bowling tournament leaders in the United States came by and gave Vern Matson and I a lesson. And it was a real skinny guy, and he had this girl's ball because he couldn't ever gotten a regular ball. They weigh less, you know, the girl's ball. And he had that ball clear up to here. And I can't even begin to do the contortions that he did. He took about six steps, ran down there, and I mean... You never saw anybody with all eyes, and I was watching. You can't help not watch when somebody does something like that. And he would throw that ball. It'd be about, you know, halfway down there before it got on the boards. It was in the air most of the time. And when he did get a strike, man, I mean, pow, like this, you know, and all eyes on him. Don Martin, I think, was the name of the instructor anyway. Back in the 50s, he was one of these world champions. He came by. And I was trying to do this. I was trying to kill those, you know, break the pins. And he showed me how to take a three-step, hold the ball way low, and barely bring it back, and just turn my hand to the side. And I bowled on that very same day, following those lessons, 247. I brought the sheet home and showed it to my wife. I don't know if we can find it around somewhere. But it was, it was, I had to tell myself, now don't be athletic with this. Quit showing out. Quit showing off. Just do it straight and simple and smooth. I could probably still do that at age 62. I don't think my back would let me, but I might. But I had to learn that if you discarded vanity, you discarded all the athleticism, you discarded trying to show off, you could really bowl pretty well. You'll find the same thing is true in a lot of sports, I think. I remember a waitress or two and a couple of girls I saw in college that did this. It was one gal that I talked to about it on one occasion. It was a waitress that had feet about that long, but she took steps about that long. She looked like a taco commercial that Cheryl and I used to see in Pasadena. And, and, uh, but have you ever seen anybody walk like that? It was unbelievable. She was walking with this forced little mincing step with these number 12 feet. It was just ridiculous to look at something like that. Now, you women, if you want to, can go down to Murphy's Furniture Store and buy a vanity. And everybody knows exactly what it is, right? You can buy a vanity. What is a vanity? Well, it's a dresser that has a mirror. Or they call it a looking glass. That glass is not looking. You're doing the looking. So what we ought to rename these things is that glass should be called the naked truth. Right? Because women come out of the bathroom and there they are. Ah! You know, until they, as they say, put on their face and, and, and get ready to go out. You see a lady, and I saw the cut line under a cartoon one time, there was this lady with these great, big, huge pink curlers all over her hair, you know, and she was wheeling a cart in the supermarket. She was wearing a pair of shorts, Japanese shower sandals, and some kind of a tank shirt or something, and these curlers. And the guy was telling his girlfriend, she's going out later. <laughs> okay, you don't get it, all right, I tried. There is a vanity of youth and there is a vanity of age, and I can tell you about a person who was vain over a terrible, terrible disease. I can tell you I met a, met a person one time who was paraplegic and vain about it. So I have determined long ago that if all was left was a brain lying there in a jar and somehow still functional, that it could have vanity present, because vanity is in us deep down somewhere. There is a vanity 
of youth, a vanity of age, and especially a vanity of the uneducated, uncalled, unimportant, would-be religious hobbyists who like to say that they are special in God's sight. And because of a deep-seated inferiority complex, not able to say, I'm just average, I'm just one more person, I'm no more important than anyone else going by out there on the highway, I'm just one of millions. They can't handle that, and so they say, oh, I am special, I am unique, I know something these people don't know. I've met a lot of people like that. And then they get vain about it. I've seen people who would come to church with a Bible that big and actually have to have a stand to put it on. I, you know, it, it's every extreme, and especially in religion. Why should there be so much vanity in religion? I've got a secret. I know something. I've got special knowledge. Just you and me, Lord. Just the other day, God told me that. And so the people in the audience hearing this evangelist saying, well, God spoke to my heart and told me. You know, they say, well, that's great. God never said one word to me. I've never heard his voice. I don't know if he's a bass or a tenor, and this guy is up there telling me, God talked to me, and God told me this, and God told me that. And they're lying. They haven't heard God's voice. How can they lie like that? But they do. There is a vanity of education, a vanity of position, a vanity of wealth, and especially there is a vanity of the way we appear. There are some people who have been blessed, I think in a way we could probably say cursed, with what we might call beauty. Handsome men, beautiful women. How many do you suppose beauty queens, how many magazine covers, how many great models have made wonderful wives and mothers? How many of them have had a happy life, successful, fulfilling, and rewarding? How many have become grandparents? I don't know of a one, but then I don't know of very many of them. I'm thinking of Marilyn Monroe. I'm thinking of some of the movie stars that I remember. I'm thinking of a lot of people that were so filled with vanity over the way the skin was stretched over their face that their lives were absolutely wrecked and ruined. If we will go to the 11th chapter of the book of Matthew, Matthew the 11th chapter, show you one more example here. And reading in verse 29, Jesus said, I'll read up to it, verse 28, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. If we will turn in that same thought to Luke, the 18th chapter, Luke 18, and see the example of the Pharisee and the publican. This parable he spoke unto them, certain that trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Why? Why should someone who has been blessed with forgiveness, someone who has been blessed with God's truth, instead of being so happy with it, instead of being so grateful for it, instead of wanting to share it with other people, become vain about it. How do you become vain about God's truth? Is it possible? Even if you're in the true church, not a false church now, God's church, the true church, and know the truth, to become vain about it, conceited, prideful, self-important. 
They trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Well, all right, fine, trust in yourself that you're righteous, but why despise somebody else who isn't? Why? Because of a deep-seated consciousness that maybe you're nowhere near as righteous as you think. And maybe, after all, it is jealousy. Two men went up into the temple to pray. There's a beautiful song about this. The one a Pharisee and the other a publican. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. He prayed with himself, but he used God's name on it. Interesting, who is he calling God? If he's praying with himself, is he really praying to God in humility, addressing a great being in heaven who put the sun blazing up there in the skies, before whom he stands in awe? Or was he praying in his mind, it says, within himself, to himself, but the name God enters into it? God, I thank thee, and the whole thing is comparison, that I'm not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican, and thinking about the man who was standing there beside him. I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the publican, standing afar off, would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For every one that exalts himself shall be abased, and he that humbles himself shall be exalted. If you'll turn to Romans, the seventh chapter, you'll see the example of the Apostle Paul in that light. I think I want the, hang on, I think, yeah, Romans, the seventh chapter. And I'll just read up to it, beginning in about verse 14. We know the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. Now listen who's talking. The Apostle Paul. And I think most of us would probably always tend to say that right behind Jesus Christ and his example in the Bible, because God did use Paul to write 14 whole books of the Bible, and because some of the most beautiful among all the New Testament scriptures, including 1 Corinthians, the 13th chapter on love, were written by the Apostle Paul. So we tend to think that he was a, an extremely righteous and godly man. I think that, and I think that's fair to say. I think you think that. I think it's true. But yet, here is this extremely righteous, godly man who, because of his past, who, because of what continually plagued his mind of people screaming in pain as he was overseeing their torture, and their only crime was being Christians, and believing in Christ, he couldn't shake that, and so continually this man was humble. He never got swelled up with pride and ego and vanity. Instead, he was filled with humility. That which I do, and I'll paraphrase this in modern English, I wish I didn't do. Or what I wish I would do, that I don't do. And what I hate, absolutely hate it, I do it. If then I do that which I wish I wouldn't, I'm consenting unto the law that it is good. Now then, it is no more I, and I have emphasized the new creature in Christ at the Feast of Tabernacles in past years, because you're really dealing in one sense with the physical human being, the physical Apostle Paul, and with the psyche or the innermost spirit of the new creature in Christ, on the other hand, and the two are in conflict. It is no more I that do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, not talking about the spirit, 
dwells no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. For the good that I would do not, the evil which I would not, that I do. Or the good that I would, I do not, but the evil which I would or wish I would, uh, that I do. Now, if I do that I would not, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwells in me. I find it is axiomatic, it is automatic, it's a law, it's just there. And that's the way we are as human beings. When I would do good, evil is right there with me. How absolutely true. It is a thought away. It is in our minds and in our hearts. And only if you look up, I've preached in the past about this, and I didn't want to go into a lot of the details about the chemistry of uh, baking and, and uh, bicarbonate of sodium and so on, and go through all of this about leavening today. But if you look at the fact of the ubiquitous presence of yeast spores, and you even look at all living plants. You've heard of dandelion wine, but you probably never drank any birch bark wine the way I have, but practically any, well, anything actually that is organic and is of this ecosphere, whether it's those flowers, has alcohol in it and will ferment. It is present within the plant. And that is the thing I want to emphasize. As the Apostle Paul says, sin is not something out there behind the hibiscus bush. Sin is not stalking you with a black mask with a gun in his hand. Sin is not lurking around behind the barn. Sin is not coming at you in a runaway truck. Sin is in here. It is dwelling inside of here. So during the Days of Unleavened Bread, what do you do? You resist imbibing a particular kind of bread, and instead you take in, you chew, you digest, you assimilate, and a different kind of flat, unleavened bread literally becomes a part of you gives you energy, and is actually carried into every cell of your body and helps you maintain your weight or to grow, if you're a youngster, to develop if you're the fetus in a womb. It becomes a part of you. And Jesus Christ is to come inside of us and live his life within us. And that is the only way we will ever conquer sin. He says, I find a law that when I would do good, evil is present. It is right there. It isn't lurking or stalking you. It is there. It is inside. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man, that is, the new creature in Christ. But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is there resident in my members. O oh, wretched man that I am, one of the most righteous men you've ever heard of, one of the most godly men who has probably ever lived, a man who was a great champion for God, who wrote 14 books of the Bible, and he is saying this, O wretched man that I am. Now let me tell you something about Paul. You and I ought to be very glad we never knew him personally, because it says very clearly he didn't look like much. He may have had cataracts that were so thick and whitish, and they didn't have the techniques for removing them then, that he was ugly and repulsive to look at. He apparently had a weak, scratchy voice. They said his speech was weak and difficult. He talked about the messenger of Satan that I think was his eyes because it says very clearly because he had other people as his scribes doing his writing for him and because in one occasion he ordered a church to be careful about false apostles' letters as from us who were actually faking it and sending letters around to the churches and saying it came from Paul. He said, you see how with such large letters I have written in my own hand. 
And that's like some letters we get from people who are elderly, who have Coke bottle glasses or cataracts that are very scratchy and they can barely write and barely see. So you might have tended to despise Paul's appearance. You might have rejected the way he sounded. He said so in what he wrote. But also, aren't we glad we don't know what it was he did? Familiarity breeds contempt. It shouldn't. Who is the most familiar? God and Jesus Christ. Who knows one another so deeply and so thoroughly that there is no secret, there is no avenue unexplored, there is nothing, no, no thought that occurs to them that what they're both absolutely as one, God the Father and Christ the Son. And he loves Jesus Christ. He said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And I have tried to portray for you the, the crucifixion, then the resurrection, and then the coronation, the scene where Christ walks between the 24 elders to the Father and receives the crown as king of the universe. There is no familiarity breeding any contempt there, is there? What is the closest possible relationship in the human family? It's, in, it's within the family, isn't it? It's husband and wife. It's mother and daughter, father, son, father, daughter, mother, son. It's brother to brother, sister to sister. What is the next closest relationship? It is in the church. It is in the church. Yet what did Jesus Christ say? A prophet hath no honor among his own kin or in his own country. And there he, Christ, could do no mighty work because of their unbelief. The Holy Spirit of God was not going to perform powerfully because of the negative field, the negative input that was all around him. His own family, his own brothers that chided him and said, go on down to Jerusalem and do the big things down there. Let them see what a great man you are. And they put him down. So he said, a prophet hath no honor. It is part of you. It is part of me. Don't let it be. Get rid of it by imbibing Christ, that unleavened bread that is Christ. Do not take each other for granted. Do not take me for granted. I will not take you for granted. Do not take your ministry for granted. Do not think when I tell you something that it is poorly thought out, or just my idea, or an opinion of mine. I will try my very level best to make sure that my opinions don't enter in to what I preach. That doesn't mean I will do it perfectly. So beware, listen, compare, and keep your sovereign spirit intact. But nevertheless, let us not impede and hinder the work of God's Holy Spirit by familiarity breeding contempt. The Apostle Paul, that man whom we look upon as being so righteous, said, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord, so then, with the mind, with his intent, I serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. This is a time during the days of unleavened bread when we are to look introspectively, spiritually, in the same way that you housewives peeked around in your pantries and every nook and cranny in the kitchen, and we looked in the refrigerators and the freezer to make sure you didn't have any... Did you look in the freezer to make sure you don't have little cans that you pop up, you know, and you put in there? And Okay, sometimes you might forget... You know, invariably, someone will forget. I'll never forget the day Sherwin McMichael and a bunch of us were playing basketball, oh, 20-some years ago probably, up at Big Sandy, and we got all 
exhausted, and we'd kind of forgotten, I guess, what it was, what was going on. We went all the way over to Hawkins to a little place and ate a cheeseburger. About halfway through that cheeseburger, Sherwin looked at me and Les McCullough and Ron Kelly, whoever was there, and he said, oh, ghastly, as only he could say it. And we all said, oh, ghastly. And we put those sandwiches down and said, how could you do this? You know, people will find beneath the seat of their car some peanut crackers they bought last year. The kids stuck in there. They didn't even know it was there. A housewife will invariably find something after the days of unleavened bread are over. And it's always a good spiritual lesson. God's not going to throw you overboard because of that. You tried to find it all, but you didn't. But it's a good spiritual lesson. You try to find it all. It's still in there. It was last year, and it is this year. I can prove it. I can run right out of this pulpit and run down there and grab hold of you and knock you out of that chair and tweak your nose till blood comes and make you real mad at me. But I'm not going to do that because I don't want to prove just how ferocious some of you people could really be if you wanted to be. <laughs> so let's eat humble pie all seven days and enjoy the Days of Unleavened Bread.